The text for this afternoon will be taken from the letter to Titus. The letter to Titus, and we will be reading the first four verses. Here we read, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, advice comes in many forms. Often we receive it according to a sliding scale. We see the asked for right down to the downright unwanted. Many of you mothers have experienced this with new babies. Every one of you has probably received a lot in the way of suggestions with regards to your baby. Oh, your baby's crying. It's hungry. Oh, your baby's just too tired. Your baby's thirsty. Oh, you should move your baby to the shade. You can judge for yourself how much you think of this advice. Sometimes advice can be also very valuable. The richest men in the world received much advice. They were mentored. Mark Zuckerberg was mentored by Steve Jobs. Bill Gates credits his success in part to Warren Buffett. Richard Branson, the owner of Virgin Galactic, had an airline entrepreneur named Freddie Laker as his mentor. Now this last man, Richard Branson, spoke of the value of having mentors for a startup. He said, understandably, there's a lot of ego, nervous energy and parental pride involved, especially with one or two person startups. Going it alone is an admirable, but foolhardy and highly flawed approach to taking on the world. So he recognizes that you have a lot personally invested, but he says going it alone is not a good idea. He says it's valuable to have mentors. Now in the ancient world, this was no different. The apostle Paul is discipling Titus. Titus was in a difficult field, and he needed some mentorship. And so Paul comes to him with a letter of encouragement and advice. Now, well, Lord willing, I plan to work through this letter in future sermons. Today, I want to just focus on the background and introduction. So in the opening phrases, we find the following theme. Greetings in the faith you were granted through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that this is, first of all, a faith brought with authority, And secondly, that it's a faith with a foundation. Now, to understand this letter, it's helpful to look at the background. Paul is writing to Titus at the church in Crete. This church was possibly established during that time we read in our Acts 27 passage, when Paul was sent to Rome. The ship stopped in Fair Havens, but it couldn't winter there. Paul suggested that they stay for the safety of the ship. The helmsman, however, disagreed. Both he and the owner of the ship argued that since this harbor wasn't prepared to winter a ship, 
They should risk the voyage to Phoenix further west. So the centurion chose to listen to the sailor instead of the rabbi, and they headed west, straight into a storm. Now we know that Paul was accompanied during this time because of the many we passages that we read in Acts, including in our passage here in Acts 27. Over the years, Paul had many different companions. We read about Titus, Tychicus, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Luke, and more. We also know that he had a habit of leaving companions behind. He left Timothy in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Barnabas and Mark in Antioch, Acts 15, and now Titus in Crete, Titus 1 verse 5. The dating of this letter is a little uncertain, but we know that it's before A.D. 66 and that it's after this voyage of Paul's, which happened around A.D. 60. So since the letter would have been written after the establishment of the church, this moment in time when Paul stops in the city of Fair Havens is the most probable time that the church was established. So, it's with this rough background that our letter begins. Paul starts his letter to Titus with the words, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is common enough for Paul to use, but we have to ask ourselves for a moment, why is he speaking like this? Because this is understandable if he's writing to a church if he's writing to an established congregation, but I thought this was being written to Timothy, his true child in a common faith. Even in the day of Paul, it wasn't very common to open a personal letter like this. Think of example, 3 John, there we read another personal letter. And we read, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. That sounds a lot more personal, right? Well, there's a reason that he speaks this way. It's kind of similar to, let's say you're in a group with a number of other people, and you're talking quietly to someone, and then suddenly speak up so that someone else can overhear. A friend is walking up, and you say, oh, that James guy, he's such a great guy. Oh, hi, James. I didn't see you there. Now, a moment like this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but... It's a personal thing, and it's meant to be overheard by others. What Paul is doing here is somewhat similar. There were some who were opposed to him in this congregation that he's writing to. And he's not speaking this way for the recipient of the letter, but he's speaking this way in order to be overheard by the rest who will be listening to this letter being read out. His apostleship was not disputed by Titus, but it was disputed by others. And so Paul added titles to remind the people who were listening of who he was. He meant this letter to be read publicly to remind the people of the gravity of opposing him. Paul starts with the phrase, servant of God, as a general description, and then narrows it down with apostle. The word that Paul uses for servant here is literally slave. The Greek word is doulos. Now, in our day, we hear this word and we immediately think slave, deep self, cotton plantation, brutal treatment. But that's not the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about. 
That kind of slavery was rarely seen in the Roman world, except with the worst of criminals. And these were sent to the mines. Some slaves were highly skilled, being physicians or accountants. Some even held property or were very powerful, especially those who took care of the accounts of provincial governors. These slaves could have very good lives. Now, the point of this view, this description of slavery in the Roman Empire is not to make light of it or to condone it in any way, but it's to understand the general context of what Paul is saying. By calling himself a slave, he is saying he is solely committed to another. By calling himself a slave of God, he's saying he's solely committed to God. He is duty-bound and required to show his total allegiance, as was commonly expected by a slave in the ancient Roman world. In fact, that was why slaves could only give testimony under torture. It was expected that this total loyalty would not allow them to betray their masters. It's this allegiance to God that he's expressing when he uses the word Paul, servant or slave of God. But there's more. Paul is not simply a slave, a totally loyal figure bought with the precious blood of Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Literally, he is one who is sent, a special envoy, delegate, or messenger with extraordinary status. In our context, he's specifically one who has been sent, who has been a close follower of Jesus Christ and has been personally commissioned by him. He wants to remind those that listen who are being influenced by others that claim to be servants of Christ. He wants to remind these people that while there are not necessarily ranks in authority, there are definitely ranks in authenticity. They are all servants of God, but he is an apostle. He has been personally commissioned. You may be familiar with Paul's background for this from Acts 9. Back when he was still named Saul, he was on the warpath against Christians, traveling down the road to Damascus, ready to persecute and kill the Christians living there. He was struck down by light and confronted by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was part one of his defense. He was personally confronted. Now later, Paul went on to Damascus, blind and led by the hand. There he was met by a reluctant Ananias who had been told, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And yes, he did suffer. He suffered incredibly. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians. But this was the second part of what he's saying when he's using the word apostle, that he's commissioned. He wasn't just personally conversing with Christ, but he was also commissioned by Christ. That's Paul's defense. And his opponents were called to remember that. Paul is a messenger with extraordinary status. Maybe he became a close follower of Jesus Christ and he was personally commissioned by him later than the other other ones, but no less legitimately. He wasn't some rogue preacher going among the nations, spreading whatever new teaching came into his mind. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who had commissioned him personally. 
and Titus was his legitimate spiritual son bound to him in faith. For those who would hear this letter read, it was important for them to recognize that Titus was indeed sharing in this very same faith. His faith was a powerful bond. It tied Titus and Paul together more tightly than blood. For from it alone could he receive the grace and peace provided by God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. And so the members of the congregation of Crete needed to listen to Titus and accept that he had the authority to appoint elders and to teach the word. Now we need to recognize the importance of the fact that it is on the authority of Jesus Christ himself that Paul moves forward. Because it is this authority that is Paul's driving passion. It is what motivates him to carry out his life of service, a life totally committed to the Lord, total submission to, as a servant to Jesus Christ. It's Christ's commissioning him that allows him to bring forward the, letter, the contents of this letter with such authority, boldness, and zeal. We need to recognize how important this is because it's not just Paul who is under Christ's authority. We are under the same authority as well. Certainly, we aren't personally commissioned. We aren't the writers of Scripture. Yet, the words which Paul wrote elsewhere still ring true for us. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Don't forget this. Don't downplay it, comparing yourself to Paul and saying, he was so much holier than I am. He was a good man, the best of the best. How could I possibly measure up? You are a member of that spiritual body. And thanks to Jesus Christ, that same spirit is at work in you. Now it's easy to fall back into old habits and patterns. It's easy to fall back into sins that hound us and won't let us go. In a world where everybody's migrating to the middle, it's hard to be exceptional. But we are different. We are exceptional. We are placed under authority and we are equipped with the Spirit. We are called to fight against the evil one and to have change come into our lives. Seeing that we are hounded by sins and seeing that we need to change, it is easy, though, to slip into what I must do attitude. It's easy to build for ourselves rule upon rule and law upon law. It's easy to build a legalistic framework from which we can fix ourselves. But that's not what we're first called to do. That's not what Paul brings forward in this letter. Look at it from the same perspective as Paul does in this book. In chapter 1, he gives a brief good elder versus bad example contrast, showing those who understand that they are under authority and contrasting those who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Then he shows that the starting point for someone who is in this position, of, uh, in this position is that of sound doctrine in chapter 2. And finally, he shows that the good works which flow from that sound doctrine in chapter 3. You don't start with works. 
You don't stop at doctrine, that's for sure. But you don't start with works. You must begin with the doctrine, and that doctrine flows out of a foundation. So to properly understand that we are different, how we are different, and how to act differently, we must have a firm foundation. For Paul, to have a faith with a foundation was of utmost importance. Shortly after his conversion, we read, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul proved that Jesus was the Christ. It wasn't a matter of blind faith for him, but a matter of seeing the evidence and following it to its conclusion. His hatred for Christians had blinded, it, blinded him before, but through the revelation of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, he could see again. How else do we explain his sudden conversion and total commitment? In the passage we read there, we read that, people's, that people are amazed. They can't wrap their minds around the fact that a man so steeped in hatred for the church could within a day become one of its strongest supporters. Even more, further in Acts 9, we read that he was accepted by the apostles. We read that Barnabas supported him, telling the apostles how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. Who in their right mind would drop a respected career, abandon a good name and a high position in society, and exchanges for persecution and fear unless they were firmly convinced that what they believed had a solid foundation. It was a truth with a foundation. All of these things, Paul's conversion and personal commissioning by Christ, his reasoned defense of the faith at the risk of his life, his acceptance by the apostles, they all point to his authenticity. They all point to his authenticity as a servant of Christ and an apostle in the eyes of his readers here. And this should be ample evidence for us as well. There is much more evidence to back it up, but this alone is one of the, one of the things that should really drive us. We have a reasoned faith. We are working from the basis, we are working from the, a lot of the texts of texts of someone who has personally heard from Jesus Christ himself. Too often we fear. Too often we fear because we're not working from this foundation. We're afraid that someone might say something to us about our faith because we're told that it's irrational to believe. In TV shows we see today, we can see that at best, 
A Christian is portrayed as someone who's naive, and at worst, you're deliberately ignorant and hypocritical. There is no in-between. But we need to turn this on its head. We have a firm hope. We have a historical Christ. For Paul, Christ was indeed his foundation. And for him, Christ had brought the hope of eternal life, a hope which was based on the unshakable promise of God. We'll look at this more in a moment, but let it strike you. Let it strike you that he was willing to suffer and to die on the basis of this foundation. Now let's look at verse 1 again. We read that he was an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but it was a faith which was based in a knowledge of the truth which he shared with them, which led to changed lives, lives according with godliness. A life based on this kind of hope, a life based on this kind of a foundation must change lives. The doctrine you hold to of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done must drive you It must drive you to live for him. Don't settle for the status quo. You might feel apathy. You might feel a lack of care rising up in your heart. But don't settle for that. Always keep pushing. Always keep running the race. Now, Paul's foundation in Jesus Christ wasn't his only reason for writing. In addition to this, his reason for writing was because there was heresy rising up in the church. The church was plagued by legalism brought in by members of the circumcision party. You can read about that in verse 10. We read in Acts 15 that this was a group which had published a statement that said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were a constant thorn in the side of the Christian church. In Acts 11, we read about how they opposed Peter. They also opposed Paul, first in Galatia, Galatians 2, and now in Crete, Titus 1. The church had responded with the words, why are you putting God to the test? They said to these people, the circumcision party, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as the Gentiles will. But still, despite having published this, heresies died hard, and they're cropping up here in Crete again. Heresies die hard. You can recognize this in your own life and heart too, don't you? The lean towards legalism can be strong. And if you don't see it in yourselves as much, Look at your kids. They've got a very strong sense of what's fair. They will measure a drink that you pour them to the nearest millimeter just to make sure that you got it right. They'll make sure that all the rules that apply to them apply to everyone else in the exact same way, without any exceptions. That's a legalistic bent. That's something that arises in our hearts quite naturally. But by embracing this legalism, the Cretans were abandoning their solid foundation. Just like children, just like us sometimes, they miss the heart of the message. 
We have been saved by grace through faith. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not a question of outward actions. It's not a question of that. It's a question of belief in their only savior. That's why this letter was written, to remind them of this. And so Paul wrote to refute this heresy with the following two points. That they have a faith resting on hope and a faith resting on knowledge. We read that he is an apostle in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul knew that he had a hope which could be trusted. This was a hope based on the character of God. It was hope on promises that came true through the ages. This God who promised eternal life was the very same God who had fulfilled so many promises before. Noah, through rescue in the flood. Abraham, being granted a nation of descendants. David, being made a king. Prophets, warnings, and promises of deliverance. And finally, in Jesus, who was the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises. Jesus, the seed who would deliver the prophet drawn from among their brothers, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and the messianic king. It was this God who promised it. And it was in hope of the faithfulness of God, the sure and proven faithfulness of God, that Paul could move forward. God has not lied in the past. Paul recognizes this. God is faithful. His love endures forever. He's like a father who fulfills his promise to earthly children. Yet, earthly fathers often stumble and fall. They'll make promises that they don't realize at the time that they cannot keep. How much more then, in contrast to this, if we trust that kind of a father, how much more should we trust the father whose promises have never failed, that we can read through the Bible salvation history and see that his promise have never, promises have never failed. Don't doubt him. Hold on to this hope that's granted to you. Hold on to the hope of eternal life waiting just over the horizon. We're in the darkness for a moment. But his righteousness will break like the dawn, leading to an eternity in which we will not suffer, struggle with pain, struggle with sin or weakness. God has promised through the ages, and God promises again, and God will deliver. Second, we have a faith resting on knowledge. This knowledge rests on the promise which God, we read, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I, I being Paul, have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The word being referred to in this verse is the gospel. This is the gospel which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but eventually brought out clearly through Jesus Christ. All of history was coming to a point. At the proper time when God deemed it best, everything throughout the sweep of salvation history came to its fullness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just his teachings. It was that Jesus Christ literally walked the talk that he would suffer and die for his own. Paul held fast to this. He held fast because he had personally witnessed who Jesus Christ was on the road to Damascus. 
At that moment, the reality struck him. In fact, it knocked him right off his horse. It was real. Everything Christ had done was real. This was a message that he had shared, a message which he himself experienced, and a message which he was entrusted to share. Brothers and sisters, you don't rest on a foundation that is formed by blind faith. You rest on a foundation of historical fact. Love it, share it, and hold fast to it. Let us hold fast to the faith we are granted through our Lord Jesus Christ, not blindly following others in the path laid out for us. Let us not worship out of habit, superstition, or legalism, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus, taking new joy in what he has done. Marvel at this firm, real, historical foundation based on the firm, real, historical promises of God grounded in knowledge and grounded in hope and leading to a firm and real future awaiting us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.